Hi everybody, this is Lupamonte and this is Talking Blues. You have a street name after you. I do. How does that happen? It's, you know what, whenever anything kind of exceptional happens in my life or in anyone's life, planets have to align. And it's, it's uh, having the street named after me is a blessing and a curse. It's, uh, um, when they were building, it's a funny story, when, <clears throat> when I grew up at the corner of Weston Road and Shepherd, there was a Wilco on the southeast corner. Right. And I lived across the street. And um, I used to park behind there with my girlfriend. We used to neck be, <laughs> behind the Wilco. Anyways, uh, they, they tore the Wilco down about seven or eight years ago, and they built a subdivision in there. And the Emory uh, BIA, the Emory Village BIA, uh, wanted to uh, name the streets in the new subdivision after kind of local people done well kind of a thing. And so they put a whole bunch of names up um, to see if they would pass. And there was a problem because Toronto does not like to name streets after living people. Okay. Because living people can mess up. <laughs> Good and point. And then it's like, oops, we named our street after this guy who's been involved in a scandal. And we got to rename the street now, you know. <clears throat> and that's a hassle. So, but anyways, they talked them into it. And... Uh, my name was one of the ones that uh, that was approved for whatever my achievements are. So there's now a Lou Pamonte Street at the corner of Western Road and Shepherd. Okay, so why is it a curse? What what would that what is it about that that would be a curse? Well, let's put it this way: if something, if if I go and run into some bad luck, it's like let's say I get a DUI. If I had a DUI before I got my street, nobody would know about it. I would keep it quiet. If I get a DUI now, it's going to be man with street named after him in Toronto gets DUI. And plus, you know, there's all those people out there that are lovely saying, oh, congrats on uh, the street that was named after you. And then there are the people that walk up to me and go, why, why did they name a street after you? It's like, I don't know, man, you'd have to ask them, you know, so it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> well, congratulations. It, it's hard to feel worthy of something like that, right? Yeah. You know, so. It would be weirder if you lived on that street. Yeah. I have a friend that lives on that street. Oh, no, really? Very strange, yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice if they gave me a deal on buying houses on that street. That, that, yeah, that'd that would be good. Be good. But, yeah. no. Well, for your family. Um, I want to start by asking you about, like, I look at you and I think of a very accomplished musician, the people you've worked with, the, the things that you have done. <clears throat> um, how did it all begin? How did music come into your life? Well, I'm the third of four children. And I have two older sisters, seven years older than me and 11 years older than me. And like a lot of families in that era, they were forced to take piano lessons on the beat-up old upright in, in the basement. And they hated every single minute of it. So after my parents went through that with my two older sisters, they said, well, we're never doing that again. And so I discovered the piano on my own when I was 12 years old in the basement and there were all these, we bought, we got the piano from an older aunt of mine. And the piano was quite old. And there were all these boogie-woogie books from the 40s. Learn how to play boogie-woogie. Like, 
you know, original from the 1940s. And so I discovered these books at around age 12 and uh, started to teach myself the notes of the piano. And I mean, my dad said to me, do you want to take lessons? I said, absolutely not. He says, do me a favor. He says, I'll make you a deal. Take six lessons. If you never want to take another lesson as long as you live, I'll, I won't say a word. Can I ask you what your, what music meant to your parents? Uh, my, I think I got my, I think I got my musical talent from my mother, even though neither of my parents were musicians. But my mother had a great love of music. My father liked music too, but my mother, like Ray Charles, would come on and my mother would swoon. So I mean, they obviously saw the benefit of giving piano lessons or yes. getting piano lessons to the kids. So you took the six lessons. I took the six lessons, and that was the end of that story. <laughs> uh, it was at Rose Music Center in Weston, and I was there for about six months, and uh, I ended up down at the Royal Conservatory for six years, and then I went to Humber College. And So you, it connected with you immediately? Immediately. I've got a theory about all this, okay? You know, there are some people that you can't make practice for 15 minutes. Right. And then there was me, people like me, who practice for for 15 for 5 hours a day. And it's very simple what it is. I've always told my kids. I've been working on this quote for a few years. I've always told my kids, the definition of success is finding the right vocation for your particular dysfunction. <laughs> right? Right. In other words, when I, you know, I was ADD and uh and my focus was going in a million different directions at once. The minute, the very first time that my hands hit a piano keyboard and played a C chord, it was like all of my weird, um, all, all of my weird energy going out in a million directions at once all got focused into this one thing. So people that become musicians become musicians and practice five hours a day for a very simple reason. And that is, they feel better when they're playing. Right. People that you have to force to practice don't feel better when they're playing. But like I said, my particular dysfunction was like was uh, was assuaged by 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 playing music. The minute I started to play music, it's like my whole brain just relaxed, and I felt physically better wow yeah what kind of music were you into other than listening to what your parents were listening to what were you personally into when you started playing the piano i always liked pop, pop and jazz and r&b and soul music um i was forced to play classical music for five years when i was at the conservatory and i don't regret it um uh, it gave me a discipline and it helped my reading like for my session work that happened in the 80s and 90s. Without my classical training, my reading wouldn't have been, I was known as a really good reader and my reading wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as that had I not taken the classical, but I'm a lousy classical player. Like, and there was never, classical was never an option. No, okay. I was never, no, I wasn't anywhere near good enough. Um, but um Hey, man, it's like I said before, my life changed when I saw the Ohio players on the Midnight Special. <laughs> it was like this little scrawny white, white kid in Weston in his basement uh, watching the Midnight Special and the Ohio players came on. Like for, for most people, it was the Beatles. Well, I was a little young for all that. Right. I was six years old um, when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan, so I missed that. 
But man, oh man, when I heard real funk R&B for the first time, I was like, I was sold. And I've been following that ever since. Which explains Oakland Stroke. Which explains Oakland Stroke. Um, How prominent is keyboards in Ohio players? Sorry? How prominent is the keyboards in Ohio players? Uh, It's there. There were two lead singers in the band, Sugarfoot, the guitar player, and the guy who played the the keyboards also sang lead. So you watch this and you're thinking, that's what I want to do? Yeah, well, not so much looking at the guy. I wasn't no. overly taken with the keyboard player, who I don't even know his name. <clears throat> but that sound, that funk groove, was like, was like heroin. It's like, wow, what's that? And while you're taking classical lessons, mm-hmm. are you playing in a band? Are you doing- yes, okay. like all of us, you know, starting around 15, playing in little garage bands. We're terrible. I, someone sent me a tape a little while ago. God, it sounded horrible. You know, we were just terrible, right? And so you just got pay, <clears throat> you pay your dues. Right. Bands didn't start getting decent until I was about 17. And then they started to get better. Okay, and then you were, you went to Humber. I did. So at one point or another, you decided music is the path that you Oh, have. here's the thing. So a lot of my friends tell stories about how there was a moment when they decided to be a musician. And for me, there was never a moment. From the moment I played when I was 12 years old, it really was the only option for me. There was never a moment where I had to sit down and go, geez, am I going to be able to make a living? Should I really do this? Is it a viable option for my future? There was none of that. It was strictly, I started playing music at 12, and that's all there ever was. There was my girlfriend, and there was music, and that's all there ever was. Did so you, there was never a moment. Did you have an idea what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, it was like it was like I wanted to be Gino Vanelli, like I wanted to be Chick Corea. I wanted to be. I wanted to play in Earth, Wind, and Fire. I wanted to do all that stuff. So you knew that's that. That was it. And did you know how to get there? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Okay, and then you went to Humber. Mm-hmm. which is a serious music place. Early Thank on you. in Humber's you know, uh, life, I, I started there in 1976. And you're thinking what? That you're going to follow jazz or...? Well, Humber's a jazz school. But Humber wasn't as strict back then as it was now. There was lots of R&B. There's, there's lots of R&B and soul music and rock music at, at Humber. Uh, there's the pure jazz side, but there's, there's lots of other stuff. There's Latin music there. And soon after graduating... No, no graduating. Oh, no graduating. <clears throat> no, no, no. After two years of Humber, um, I was working too much. I was gigging every night. So I dropped out like most of my friends did. Okay. Um, what were you gigging with? Or who were you gigging with? Oh, God. I was in a blues band called Q-Ball. I don't know if you remember Q-Ball. Larry Goodhand and Fraser Finlayson and Joe Benson, all those guys. Steve Chadwick. Um, and that was my kind of first band. You know, we'd play the Elmo Combo all the time upstairs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I was just working a lot. I was just playing with a lot of different people. And were you liking what you were doing? Like, were you thinking, this is exactly what I want to well, be I liked some bands better than others, but, you know, no. Um, no, there weren't any, there wasn't anything great until Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know. Right. Okay, so how did yeah. that happen? Well... This was pretty, like, the 80s, right? 1980. So, 
my son, who's a professional musician now, who will be touring Japan all this summer with Bees, the biggest selling rock group in Japan. That's another story for maybe another day. Um, um, I My first big gig was in 1978, and uh, Patsy Gallant, who was oh. very big at the time. From New York to L.A. From New York to L.A., and she had her own TV series on CTV and all that stuff. I got the call <clears throat> to go and be in that band, and that was my first big gig. So I went from... I went from making $150 a week in 1978. Playing bars. Playing bars. You know, maybe, yeah, about $150, $175 a week playing six nights in a bar in 1978 to making $1,000 a week with Patsy and uh, touring all over the country. And it was a 13-piece band. Wow. And yes, we were playing disco, but we played some Michael Jackson and we played a whole bunch of other stuff too. And it was... My first taste of the big time kind of thing. You how, know? Did, how did you get the call? How does that Reputation. Um, all my good calls have all been like I know somebody in the band and they say, hey, we need a keyboard player. Hey, you, you, you should get Lou. It's all kind of word of mouth. How old were you at this point? I was 20. And did you know you were good? I had so much enthusiasm that I didn't stop to think if I was good enough. I was so... Is it just because you love music? I just music? loved it so much. I was just so enthusiastic about all of it. Playing, gigging, the music. I, I never stopped to evaluate myself. If I had to stop to evaluate myself, I may not have uh, been so enthusiastic. But I was blind to all that stuff. Um, I've talked about confidence a number in, in recent interviews. Tell me about confidence that you had back then in your ability is it something you always had, or is that something? That Let's put it this with? way: um, the kind of the ignorance of youth is a is a blessing, right? Like, I wouldn't call it confidence; I'd call it kind of like I said before, blind enthusiasm. I was so jazzed about doing what I was doing that I never thought about being confident or not or not confident. I guess I was confident. But it was, like I say, a kind of a blind confidence. It's not like, I'm really good. I can do this. It wasn't that. It's like, wow, I get to do that? That's awesome. <laughs> right? So I just did it. Now, I, I, I've been shot down a few times in my life where I had that enthusiasm. Um, oddly enough, in the classical world with the TSO, and they asked me to do something, and I said, okay. And I wasn't really up to the test because my classical... Situation. I'm not a classical player. I'm just right. not, you know. So I got in a little too deep on that day. But uh, when it comes to pop, rock, and soul, and jazz, and all that stuff, it's it's all good. So if you're playing <clears throat> in bars, making 150 bucks a week, and then all of a sudden you're touring the world or nationally, yeah, and making thousand dollars a day, and you're really no different, right? You're the same player, right? Just, what? The, how does that? affect you or how does that well, it, it, it showed me it showed me what was possible out there I never you know I was used to playing with blues bands you know playing across Ontario and staying in these lousy horrible dumps you know sharing sharing floors with strippers and I mean you know it's really not glamorous and yet I knew thinking this is this could be my future or oh no it was definitely my future I thought I, I wasn't taking no for an answer. I mean, I, I mean, this was it. 
it, there was no backup plan. There was no plan B. And I tell young players now, I said, regardless of what your dad told you, I said, if you're going into a career in the arts, you better not have a plan B because there's, you are surrounded by people who are going to do this no matter what. And I had told myself when I was uh, traveling around Ontario in lousy bands, um, I had told myself, and I, I can hear myself talking to other guys in the band, because a lot of them were older than me and they were thinking of leaving and becoming real estate agents and all that stuff, because there just wasn't a lot of money, you know? And I said, personally, I said, I don't care if I make $250 a week for the rest of my life. I said, this is all I'm going to do. And I can remember myself saying that. Now, it didn't turn out that way, and I'm thankful but I know that I was ready to be a musician no matter what happened career-wise or money-wise. Um, if I hadn't have been lucky enough to have whatever success I've had, I'm 100% sure that I'd still be a musician. I'd just be living with a buddy of mine in, in, in an apartment. Right. Yeah. So at no point you felt like, oh, man, I made a mistake. I better do no. something else. No, no. Would you ever? Did you ever go through a really tough time where music was difficult, financially, or or both? Just mentally, financially, like where you thought, "Holy shit, how am I going to get out of this?" Well, let's put it this way: my my the way I feel about a career in the Canadian music business is you basically have to reinvent yourself every ten years. So, yes, I felt like okay, what I'm doing right now isn't working for me anymore. So I would reinvent myself. So for example, I was a live player in the 70s. And then in the early 80s, the whole Blood, Sweat and Tears thing. And then the Blue Note with Dominic Troiano and George Oliver and all that stuff. Then in 1983, I got my first call for a session. And I became extremely busy in the Toronto session. I don't want to jump ahead for you in case you're waiting. But for the next 15 years, you know. And then after that, I started to write jingles because there was so much money in it. And it was a, I'm a guy who likes to work on music every day. You know, I don't like to wake up and, like, I, I like to wake up and work on music all day. And jingles w- were good for that because you wake up, you go to your studio, you got a thing to do, you do your thing, and then you might have a gig at night or something. So, but I got really disillusioned, of course, after a few years in the jingles. And when I got that feeling, I had to reinvent myself. And that's when I entered the TV and film world. And then, four years ago, I got completely disillusioned with the TV and film business, and I quit. And now, I just make records. I play live, and I make records. Did you always play live throughout this whole journey? 83 to 92... I was so busy in the studio that I didn't play live. I worked all day. I, I, I would have a jingle, like playing a jingle in the morning, a TV show in the afternoon, and then I'd do a rock record at night, like either at Phase One or Metalworks. So there was no time for, for me to be playing live. Right. But 92, I joined the Kim, Kim Mitchell band, and that was kind of my start of playing live again. Okay, so if we go back and you have the Patsy Gallant gig and mm-hmm. you're thinking, oh, this is pretty neat. One of the first thing I would think of was, God, when this ends, what am I going to do? Did you have that feeling? Well, I was a sideman with her in 78. I was 20. And then in uh, 79, when I was 21, she asked me to be her musical director. So that was the first time I was ever musical director for anyone. So 
as soon as the Patsy Gallant gig ended, I got a call from Ian Thomas. In in um, I'm I'm lying. I got it backwards. As soon as the Patsy Gallant thing ended, I got a call from George Oliver, and they were opening a new club in Toronto, the Club Blue Note on Paris Avenue. Right. Well, that was a huge success. I don't know yeah. if you ever went down there in 1980. I remember the place, but yeah. it was you know six nights a week lined up out out to Avenue Road. Um, so one thing has seemed to come right on the heels of another in my life. Like as soon as Patsy ended, the Blue Note started for a year. When the Blue Note ended, Ian Thomas called. And I worked. We toured Canada with him for a year. That's kind of how. Okay, it so went. at this point now you're playing with a different level of musicians with recording acts. Right. Yeah. What do you notice about that versus the bands you were playing? Well, with? the fact is you're playing all original music now at this point. There's no longer covers, right? right? So now you're working for an artist. You're working for a recording artist. You know, and a guy like Ian is a, you know, a super focused, you know, very talented, great writer, all that stuff. And they take their stuff seriously. So, I mean, you know, being in a bar band where everyone gets drunk every night and then going into the world of this where you're, these guys are actually trying to do something. Um, the level of discipline is completely different. And do you adjust to that immediately? Is this an easy thing for you to I was ready for all this stuff. I was like, bring it, man. Bring it on. Like, bring it on if it's harder if it's more focused like like i said i was kind of just a a bundle of enthusiasm ready to take what what whatever anybody threw at me so other than the discipline and the focus what would you have learned from going to that next level going to the level of playing with recording artists yeah and and successful recording artists yeah people who've had hits yeah um well, the first one, you know, after Patsy Galan, I, I, I did get the order wrong. After Patsy Galan, of course, was blood, sweat, and tears. Right. So I got a call from Venezuela in 1980. And for two years, I, I toured with him off and on. So, okay, how does that happen? How oh, does he know oh, the call okay. once again? So they're in Venezuela. Now, it just so happens that a lot of blood, sweat, and tears were Toronto guys at that point. Earl Seymour, Fern Dorge, Bruce Cassidy were the three horn players. So they fired the whole rhythm section. They kept the horn section and they decided to fire the whole rhythm section and get an all new rhythm section for whatever reason. Clayton wasn't happy or something. And so Vern Dorge, who I had played with in Humber and knew in Humber, said, we got to get Lou. So they called me and they said, can you be in Portland in, in, in a week? I said, yeah. So once, so once again, the contacts that I made in college right. paid off. And was it like... When you get a call like that, and this is, once again, yeah. a, a no, different this, level. This was a big leap now. What are you thinking? I was thinking, my God, I'm so happy I don't have to go to Charlottetown to play at the theater festival. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making me not go play rehearsal piano in Charlottetown anymore. Um, the first thing I thought was, oh, geez, I got to go get a passport. You know, Smart. so I got a passport in a week. I don't know how I did that, <laughs> but I did because I'd never had a passport in my entire life. Um, and then you get there and it's pretty, um, it's pretty daunting because here's a band that's already been on the road for two years, this band. And, and um, they sent me cassette, like cassettes in the mail and charts. And I didn't 
get to have a rehearsal before I played the first gig. I landed that day and that night was the first gig. When they send you the music, is it the live music or is it the recorded album? Tapes of the live show. Okay, so you get a pretty... You get a sense of what the band is like. And that was hard music, man, because at that point, in addition to all the old BS&T hits, there was all this new stuff they were doing, which was very angular jazz music, you know? And how was that first gig? It was fantastic. I had the time of my life. That's great. I held on for dear life, you know? (laughs) Plus, it's great that the band was perfectly tight unto themselves. Right. And so I just had to lay myself on top, you know? Wow. So what did you learn from those two years? With Blood, sweat, I learned so much from being in BS&T. The greatest thing I learned was I had never played in a rhythm section that good in my life. And the biggest thing that I learned was the better the musicians you're playing with, the easier it is to play music. Right. The, the better they are, the easier it is. Like those guys laid down a group, Bobby Economo on drums... Wayne Peswater on bass and Peter Harris on guitar. Peter Harris went on to be in Bruce Hornsby's band. Um, Wayne Peswater had come directly from Buddy Rich's band. Bobby Economo was a fabulous drummer who had grown up with Jocko. And uh, just fabulous. So I got there and these guys sounded so good. It was so easy to play. The hard thing is to play in a rhythm section where these guys are not gelling. Like where where the guys just aren't playing like a, a rhythm section. But these guys, man, they just made my bed and I just laid in it. It was fine. It was beautiful. So you did that for two years. What made you leave? The band, Clayton broke the band up. Oh, okay. He split the band up and formed a new band for whatever reason. So we're going to jump ahead here, yeah. but you still, you work with David recently. I'm right? working well on his new record right now. How weird is that? Clayton moved back to Canada about eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Uh, he lived in upstate New York for decades and he decided it was time to come home. And I've worked with him ever since he's come home. I've played in his live band. I worked on three or four of his records. I produced a record of his called Soul Ballads. And so we've got this uh, working relationship that spans almost 40 years now. Wow. Yeah. He's 76. His voice sounds great. And is it like when you have that kind of a relationship, like do you just know where he wants to go? Where the Yeah. Music? I mean, I know him pretty well at this point. Yeah. Um, okay, so we go back again. You finish with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Now you're at that l- higher level. Now I take a dip. <laughs> did you feel like that? Now, yes, it did. It did. I felt it took a dip. Not musically, but... but uh, financially? Yeah, financially it took a dip. And also just as far as uh, what, how good a gig it is. You know, I went from touring the world with Blood, Sweat, and Tears to playing the blue note with George Oliver. Now, nothing against playing the blue note, but it definitely was a bit of a, you know, three of us from Blood, Sweat, and Tears ended up in that band. And uh, I think the proof is in the pudding, though. That that club became a phenomenon in Toronto. I mean, you couldn't get into that joint. I mean, it was the hottest place to go in 1982. And... uh, I didn't last long. I only lasted six months because I started getting busy in the studio. So let's talk about the studio work because that's what I picture you doing and you've done a lot of studio work. Uh, And you've recorded with tons of people. Mm -hmm. But it's also 
you also said the commercial jingles as well. So at this point, are you- those are two different things. Yeah, I don't really. Um, yes, the jingle is session work, but but when I talk about session work, I'm talking about as a sideman okay. getting called records, TV shows, even jingles. Um, but writing jingles is like a whole nother thing. Right. So I have to assume that musically you must be a monster in order to be able to do studio work. Well, let's put it this way. You have to be, you, you have to be versed in a lot of different styles of music. Cause when you get called for a session, no one, you know, back in the day, you know, no one sent you charts ahead of time or put an MP3 in email cause there was no email. Um, but you just basically got to call Lou, be at Manta, 11 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. Okay, see you there. Didn't know what it was going to be. I could show up. It could have been a Dixieland track. It could be a heavy metal track. It could have been, uh, it could have been anything. A country track, pop track, R&B track, soul track, jazz track. And you were expected to be able to cut all these genres. Was that easy for you? I wouldn't say it was, I would say that there were very few genres that I couldn't at least pull off, you know. No one called me for classical stuff, for obvious reasons. That's a whole nother world. Um, But when it came to popular music, jazz, soul, R&B, all that stuff, I was fairly well versed in all that stuff. Just because of your experience of playing with different musicians. And my taste, my musical listening tastes. I, I listened to jazz. I listened to pop. I listened to R&B. I listened to soul. I remember a friend of mine came up to me once. He was a real jazz head. And he came up to me once, and we were, me and Johnny Johnson were talking about, who are we talking about? I don't know. We were talking about Earth, Wind, Fire or something, or Tower of Power or something. And one of our other friends who was a real jazz head came over and said, he said, wow, I really envy you guys. Like, you actually like pop music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, we actually do. And he didn't, you know, he could only listen to jazz. And I was never like that. I listened to everything, you know, even classical, even though I couldn't play it. So listening to everything versus being able to play everything are two different things, no? Or is it at your level? You absorb these things as you listen to them. I mean, any good teacher will tell you, listen, listen to everything, listen to stuff, listen, you know, listen to your favorite guys, you know, listen to this, listen to stuff you don't normally listen to. Expand your mind. Right. So in the years in the studio when you were playing with people like Anne Murray and Kim Mitchell mm-hmm. and Michael Bublé, yep. um, how easy was that to get those studio gigs? Getting them is, you either get the call or you don't. It's like you can't really canvas or s- solicit session work. It's a purely word of mouth scene. I was lucky. I came on the scene in 83 and um, word spread. It's like hire him. And it just got, it got crazy. I mean, there were weeks in the 80s, excuse me, when I would have 15 sessions in a week, like three a day. Wow. That's a lot. There was only a few guys that did that amount of work. Guys like uh, Brian, uh, Brian Barlow. Uh, Mike Francis on guitar. Right. Um, there was very few guys that, that, you know, Pete Cardinelli on bass. Very few guys that did that much stuff, you know. And this is obviously talent. 
obviously people you know. Is this the producers you're working with or record companies you're working with? You become part of a producer's comfort zone. Right, okay. Now that I'm a producer myself, I know that if I can't have Mark Rogers on bass, I'm like, oh, God, should I move the session? You know, like if I can't have my guys that I feel 100% comfortable with and I know that I, I just know if I have the right guys, I can deliver what I need to deliver and it'll be top notch. So producers get into this thing. Got to have my guys. And is, so is you, your guys like one bass player, one guitar player? No, but you definitely have a favorite. Right. And you might have a favorite guy for one genre and you might have a different guy who's a favorite guy for, you know, a jazz guy might be your favorite for one thing. But for rock, you know, you might want to use a, a different guy. But producers definitely have their in, the in crowd that they want to use, you know. And how long would it take to get that team? Like you As a producer, you mean? Yeah. So obviously you've done a lot of production work. Yeah. And I come to you and say, I want to do a jazz album. Right. Can you get me a band behind right. me? And, and you automatically know immediately. I do. Because these are people you've worked with many, many years. Once I know the genre of what the record is. I know who I want to hire. And do you, the first time you, let's say, hire the jazz guitar player yeah. and you work with him, do you know that first time this guy's a keeper? Well, like when Jake Langley moved to town, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, when I, the very first time I heard him, I thought, this guy's the greatest guitar player I've ever worked with in my life. Unfortunately, he's moved away. He, he lives in Vegas now. Wow. But guys, guys come and go. And is it, and what is that? Is it tone? Is it? Everything. It's just, you know, plus uh, an ability to interpret what I want. If I say to some guy, I want this to sound like a Larry Carlton kind of thing, you know, and when I said that to Jake Langley one day, I felt like Larry Carlton had walked into the studio. So, wow, that kind of stuff. Yeah, when I talked to Bernie Labarge about yeah. studio work, I mean, he said his... I used Bernie a thousand times, probably. Because of his ability to, he said, imitate or... Yeah, I say I want this kind of thing, but I knew what to hire Bernie for, right? I hired Bernie for rock and, and pop and soul. He was a great soul player. So before you became a producer, you were a sideman. What, during that time, what did you learn about producing that well, you use today? That's, what, that's, how, that's how a lot of producers start. Like, there's two kinds of producers. There's, there's, the music, there's the musician slash producer, and then there's the engineer slash producer. And they're very, they, they come at the same job very differently. Right. So the guys that are like me, the musician producer, you know, guys like, you know, David Foster and those kind of guys that come from a musical side of things, we all came up as, uh, as players. And so you do a thousand sessions. Right. You know, I've worked with Phil Ramone. I mean, I've seen how the, the legends do this. And you watch and you watch and you see, you see how they run a session. You see what their relationship with their artist is, which is something I learned a little late, but uh, probably the most important job of a producer when there's an artist involved is your relationship with that artist. So the first thing I do now is I try and get inside the head of the artist and go, okay, how do I do two things? How do I make him feel comfortable and happy so that he can be as good as he can be? And how do I capture the best part of this guy? How often would you become a producer for somebody that you've never worked with before? That does happen. But usually you meet them 
have a cup of coffee, have a drink, see if you're on the same wavelength. There's lots of times I've met people and I've gone, I think you should, I don't, I don't think this is right. Right? Right. For whatever reason, personality, musical style. And then sometimes you meet somebody and you're on the same page and you go, yeah, I think we can do this. So throughout your career, you've worked with pretty high level musicians and people who've been very successful. Is there something, and I know it's not one thing, but is there something about some of the people you've worked with who are very successful that you, you see in them why they are that successful? Uh, you mean like an artist or a sideman? An artist. An artist. Well, I just got off the phone this morning with Kim Mitchell. His son's getting married, and we're going to be at the wedding. We're going to play a tune and all that stuff. So we, we've been talking. And um, I find artists to be very kind of, they have tunnel vision. It's very rare for them not to be thinking about music. It's very rare for them to be, um, like Kim told me just a few months ago, I'm working on his newest album now. And he told me, he said, he says, you know, I don't play golf. I don't, I don't play hockey. I don't do any of that stuff that normal people do. He says, I just play and make records. That's all he does. So he says, you know, went over to his place and he, and he said, you know, you guys play golf. He said, but I just do this all the time. And, uh, that's, that's true for a lot of guys, for a lot of focused artists. David Clayton Thomas, 76 years old. He does a record a year. He's constantly working on lyrics. And uh, that's what he does. He just works on music all the time. Right. And now you like that? I mean, you said music is... I am like that. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to be a little bit less like that, but um, um, I find that... Um, I'm I'm every bit as busy as I have ever been in my career right now, except I'm making about about a quarter of the money that I used to make because there's absolutely no money in the music business anymore, unless you're Taylor Swift or Bruno Mars. But I find myself I've I've moved my studio out of my downtown space and I've moved it into my home. So I'm at, a t- I'm at a point now where I have to actually stop myself from working at a certain point at night, like 8 o'clock at night, and go up and watch a movie with my wife and have dinner. Um, because there's almost nothing else that's as interesting to me as my work. Right. Now, I'm trying not to be all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I'm trying, I'm trying not to be one of those you know, guys that that's all they do. But this is your love. It is. It's my passion. It's been my passion since I was twelve years old. So it's like, like I said, it's a blessing and a curse. But I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with it. So, I know that the music business is turned upside down. I would presume mainly because of the digital age. Yeah. Um, but okay. So if you're doing, I understand that if you're putting out records, you're making less money on airplay and all that. But um, in your world, how is it affecting you that you're making quarter what you used to make? Is it just that there isn't as much session work? There, are, there isn't as much people making money, therefore they can't pay you enough? Well, it's a couple of things. Technology in general, but there's been different parts of the tech that have, that have affected things. First of all, the advent 
of computers and synthesizers and plugins and all that stuff now has changed the face of the music industry. Uh, so the session scene is much, much, much less than it used to be because people can do so much more themselves at home. They can play keyboards, play a little guitar. They use plugins to use strings, horns, and all that kind of stuff like that. So it's a much more do-it-yourself kind of a thing going on now. Right. But even bigger than that was the whole Napster thing, two, 2002, when MP3, the peer-to-peer sharing and all that stuff, and a an entire generation of kids um, grew up thinking music was free. And we have not been able to shake that. And only now, the last four years or so, that the streaming model has become the model, at, at, at least for now. Right. It'll probably change again. So now we're on a sub- subscription basis, you know? So now we have the Spotify's and the Apple Music's and all that stuff. And anyone who's been following streaming royalties know what the reality of streaming royalties is. On Spotify, um, one million streams pays $4,400. If you co-write that song with someone, that's $2,200 each. If there's four people writing it, like there normally is now, it's $1,100 each for a million streams of your song. So the royalty rates are far, far, far too low. Right. And that's killing everybody. Can you give me, are you able to give me um, um, an equivalent of what it would have been if it was radio airplay? I'm not sure if you can compare the two. Well, when, uh, if you're going back 20 years, um, there were two things. Uh, there was uh, there was regular radio airplay, which paid more like three cents a play, okay, as opposed to four tenths of a cent. But in that era, pre-streaming, people were buying vinyl and CDs. They right. were buying them, so you were getting the revenue stream from the sale of the physical product and also play on radio. So when Napster happened, did you, what were you thinking? Like, did you know this is not good? This is terrible for our industry? Yes. And I think everybody did. And I mean, this is a very well-traveled territory. I don't think we have to get into it too deeply, but um, the major labels, the, the major music labels played it wrong. Everyone knows that in retrospect now. They should have just bought Napster in 2003. They should have just bought it and tailored it to their own use. Instead, they wrote it off. It took over everything. But the funny thing is, is that now that streaming has become the current model, the labels are making money again. The labels are back in the black the uh, combined three major labels are paid approximately $7 million a day uh, by all the streaming services every day from streaming. Unfortunately, almost most of that money is going to the labels and not to the artist. So there's that whole thing going on now, trying to get streaming royalties raised because they're way too low. And, right. Yeah. Okay. The other thing you did was you, you were a musical director on a number of big shows like Dunos and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Is that how different is that than producing an album? It's completely different. You see, being an MD is a big part of of what I do. Um, I've been the MD for Jazz Lives for Jazz FM for the last nine years. We've got our next show on April tenth at Kerner Hall. I was the uh, I was the MD for the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame um, for the first seven eight years of its of its of of it being around. That's fantastic because that's like artist management. So what you have to do is, first of all, it's either a television production or a live production. And you're dealing with lots of non-musician types. You're dealing with TV people. So you're not only are you the liaison between the producer, who's not a musician, probably a music lover. Right. You're being the liaison, the guy that knows all things music between the production and your orchestra and the artists that you're dealing with. Not only that, but you also I also did all the arrangements, led the band, and played in the band. And picked the band? Yes, and picked the band. And so when a show like this starts, the very first thing that happens is I have to be in touch with all of the artists. What songs do you want to do? What keys do you do them in? What kind of feel do you want to do this? How do you see this going? Blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to make them... The most important part of being an MD is making the artist feel comfortable. Um, whether it's a big show like the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame or a smaller show like like uh, like Jazz Lives. Like on the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, we had a lot of international artists. On one show alone where we inducted Joni Mitchell in 2007, uh, my guests were James Taylor, Michael Bublé, Herbie Hancock, and Shaka Khan. It's a lot of yeah. It's a lot of star power to deal with in one week, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to make sure you know. And maybe you might get an idea. Oh, geez, Herbie, what if you played with Shaka on her tune? And he did, and all that kind of stuff. And just making sure it's uh, making sure everybody's happy. It's a lot of stress, though. I can imagine, especially when it's live television. Like if it's Junos or Gemini's, and you got the headset on, and you got the director talking to you in the in the left earbud and in the right earbud you've got your band and okay Lou you got here you're back in three two one here we go you know all that stuff yeah. you know so as a producer would you sorry as an MD versus producer would you use the same type of musicians like the go-to guys in the studio would they be the same go-to guys in a situation like this all depends it all depends on genre it really does but there are some guys that are just so good that I would use them for anything. But then there are some guys that I would only use for this right. and a different guy for that. And once you get that team, yeah. is that it? I, I mean, I don't know if it's that it, but are you always looking for other people? No, the, no. like once, once, you, once you're feeling good about, about your group, I mean, other guys will come by and you'll go, oh, geez, he's good, right? Yeah. I'm going to keep him in in mind but you aren't actively going out and looking because you got your guys you know and the producer jobs are coming to you through what it's all word of mouth the entire industry is all word of mouth which brings me to another topic that i'm going to make us talk about and that is album credits okay which is this horrible thing has happened to album credits back in the old days you'd have your record your vinyl and what would you do as you listen to the record? You'd read the cover. Yeah. 
So we all knew who the mastering engineers were. We knew who Bernie Grundman was. We, we knew who, who the string players were. We knew all the players in the band, the, the bass player, the guitar player. We knew who played what saxophone solo on what Steely Dan song. Right. And believe it or not, that's how musicians get other jobs. So you play a saxophone solo on a Steely Dan song like Pete Christlieb or, uh, or Larry Carlton playing a guitar solo on a Steely Dan song, that creates a lot of work for you in the future. Oh, man, I want the guy who played the solo on Peg, right, right? or whatever. Well, that has completely disappeared. Since the advent of the MP3, even though there's metadata that's included in an MP3, it's not enough. And it's not easily accessible by the average listener. So there's all these new companies. You know, there's Jaxta, and there's this new company coming out of Sweden now, um, trying to get album credits pushed to the forefront, so that as you're listening to the music, or even if you go see movies, have IMDb, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you're watching a documentary, you're watching a movie, you go, I wonder who did the music for that takes me two seconds. I go to IMDb on my phone. I know in two seconds who's done it. That doesn't really exist in the music world, even though all music tries. Right. This is not enough data there. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I never thought about that. So a lot of us, you know, do really good work and no one knows we've done it. Yeah. So how do you get more work for doing something good if there's no credits anywhere? So I know you've done solo work. You've done your own albums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you were really busy doing other people's albums all the time. Did you ever want to pursue a solo career at any point? Only when I was young. Wanted to be, you know, the next foreigner. I loved foreigner. I loved them. Um, so when I was like 20 years old, 21 years old, I was writing all these rock tunes and, you know, singing them and demoing them and sending them to record companies and all that stuff. But it's funny, you know, I've got a 24-year-old son who's a professional and I tell him, I said, it's very all well and good that you're, you're pointing yourself in this one direction. I said, but the industry has a way of telling you what it needs from you. Uh, when you start getting hired, like for me, for example, as a sideman, as right. a player, I started getting hired as a player and I started doing really, really well. And of course, so my my pursuit of being a recording artist as a solo artist just kind of fell by the wayside. Because you weren't interested in it? I was, but I was, I saw that the opportunities were over here in being a behind the scenes guy playing on records, you know, all that stuff. And I was happy to do that because being a recording artist comes with a whole nother world of problems. Right. Right. Just being a singer comes with a whole world of problems. You don't have to worry about your throat. You got to worry about being sick when you when you perform. And but not only that, you as a recording artist, you basically spend your entire life playing nothing but your own music. <laughs> so you better like it, <laughs> because you know James Taylor has sung "Fire and Rain" for fifty years. Yeah, and he went through this whole period in the nineties. I think for 15 years where he just, he didn't play it. He couldn't do it anymore. Now he's come around and he sees all that. But I mean, for someone like me who enjoys all different kinds of music, um, uh, I prefer 
being able to put on different hats and one day work on a jazz record, one day work on a funk record, one day work on a soul record. Is there a project that you're very proud of, above and beyond anything else? The, the project I'm most proud of comes out next week, uh, April 5th. Wow. It's the new Mark Jordan album. And I've been a fan. One of the best things about staying in the music industry for a long time is if you're lucky, you get to work with your idols. So I had been a huge fan of Mark Jordan since 1978, since Mannequin came out and Living in Marina Del Rey and all those great records. And uh, we had crossed paths on TV shows and stuff. And we had worked just, you know, a day here, a day there kind of a thing. And then I finally got a chance to produce this record for Mark. And uh, we worked on it for a year. We, we worked on it almost every day for a year. And uh, it's the best thing I've ever done. It's an orchestral record. Uh-huh. And it's Mark. There's, there's three originals on it. But there's, um, there's a lot of uh, standards on it, like the nearness of you. Uh, we do a take on Walk on the Wild Side. Uh, people get ready. The, and it's all done with the Prague symphony and uh so it's a very lush and beautiful record and what i wanted to do in this record was mark's mark's had such success as a songwriter Mm -hmm. that i sometimes don't think he gets the proper credit for being a fantastic singer and a beautiful singer so i was much more interested in this record and framing mark as a song interpreter and vocalist than as a songwriter so when you presented that idea to him how obviously he was receptive. Yeah, I didn't but. really present the idea to him. He came to me and he said, I'm thinking of doing this. And I heard your work on Matt Dusk's album, last album. He said, and I thought you captured that era re- really great. And uh, so we called Matt and he said, what's Lou like to work with? And Matt very nicely said he was good. And, uh, and so Mark called me and said, I've got this idea. This is what I want to do. I want to do orchestra. Right. And... The concept kind of changed over the next few weeks, and we talked about it, and we started working. Why the Prague Orchestra? Uh, because it was affordable. Okay. And, and then, I know you've worked with orchestras before, but what in the past has put you in a place where you would be the right person to work with an orchestra? Well, it started with my work with synthesizers. Um, I was kind of known as the synth guy in the 80s, back when... You know, guys like Eric Robertson and Doug Riley and Jimmy Dale, who were the big keyboard players at the time, didn't know from synthesizers. You know, so hire Lou. He does the synth stuff. Well, that automatically leads towards mocking up orchestral arrangements with, you know, synth strings and synth yeah, right. horns and synth woodwinds and all that kind of stuff. And that that moved into working with the real thing. Um some of my work with uh, with Clayton, uh, and then some of my work with uh, the Canadian Tenors, where we got to use the TSO, and then some of my work with Matt Dusk, which was big band with strings. And so I, I, I had started to amass a whole bunch of kind of orchestral records. When you first started, was it easy to picture that? that- it's scary. It's scary at the start. Because it's kind of like another world. It's all—it's like half a step into classical, right? Right. Because you're dealing with classical players, but we aren't playing classical music. So you kind of have to get over. You kind of, kind of, you kind of have to get over the ooh. Got all these guys out there with fifty thousand dollar instruments, hundred thousand dollar instruments, and they're kind of classical snobs and all that stuff. But I worked with these guys so much as a sideman. 
that um, like I've I've played on so many movie scores with with the with big shots like James Horner uh, did a movie with James Horner did a movie with Georges Delarue one of the greatest string writers ever did a album uh, did a, a movie with Marvin Hamlish and you know I sit I used to sit on the floor at Manta at Manta Sound and it would be me with my synth gear and it would be 50 strings and four French horns and some woodwinds and and I would be able to sit and be in the middle of all of this. So as you soak all that stuff up, you start to pay attention. What's the violin? What's the first violins doing? What's the second violin doing that's different than the first? What are the basses doing? What are the cellos doing? What are the French horns doing? So it, it you know, over years and years of absorbing all this stuff, uh, you go, okay, I think I can do this. <laughs> you cross your fingers and you do it. <laughs> When, tell me about the synth because I didn't. I think of you as a B three player. I didn't know uh, about your. How did you get into the synthesizer? Well, they were all the rage when I was eighteen years old. So it's eighteen. I'm, it's nineteen seventy six, and I bought my first Mini Moog. I still have it, and uh, that was the very first synthesizer that I ever bought. Um, you got to understand, being a keyboard player in the seventies. In rock bands, the the whole thing was trying to be heard, right? Right? Like like how do I get over the drums, bass, and guitars? You know, so you buy an electric piano, and things that can be loud. You know, then you buy an organ or whatever. And uh, I was a big fan of Chick Corea and Jan Hammer, and they both played uh, the Mini Moog. Right. So I bought my first Mini Moog in 1976, but my my second synthesizer was the real big one that kind of changed everything for me. In 1982, I bought a, a Jupiter 8, a Roland. And that's kind of what got me into the whole session scene, playing synthesizers in the, the session scene. Plus, they were fun, right? I find, are they used as much these days? Like I Sin- just seen, yeah. Sin- Since? Yeah. That's almost all that's used. Because they simulate other things. If you turn on Virgin Radio... Right now, right. if you turn on pop radio right now, you will not hear a guitar. You will hear music made on computer. Now, music made on computer, it's all synthesizers. Whether, whether a synthesizer has a keyboard or not right. is not the defining thing, whether it's a, a synthesizer. Now, they're usually plugins in your computer, but they're all synthesizers. Obviously, I'm not listening to current music as much. Right. But, but I always find it kind of weird about synthesizers in, in that something seems so dated to me when I hear the sound. It's the way that, that they're used. Yeah. Um, you, you can definitely use synthesizers in a way where you just think it's 1985 again. Um, but, you know, you can use synthesizers in a way that you don't know you're listening to synthesizers. Right. Like when I do a mock-up of an orchestral track using my uh, synth strings and French horns and all that stuff. Most people can't, can't tell the difference. So, like, I think about The Who, and when I hear their synthesizers, it doesn't seem dated to me, and that might be just because I'm a fan of it. Right. But there are other things I would listen to, like Edgar Winter or something, and think, yeah, that takes me right. back to certain Right, time. You're talking about this new album and how excited you are. Um, at what point, what point did you think you made it? And I'm not sure if that's the right term, but you obviously, you, you established yourself, you have a name in the music industry, you've worked with great people. 
and I presume there probably wasn't a time when you weren't working or when, when people weren't calling you. Was there a point where you thought... I always, when I was young, like 15, 16, I revered the guys in the, the, the boss brass, the Guido Bassos, the Gina Maros, Rob McConnells, all those guys. So I used to go to tapings of CBC big band shows down, you know, when I was a young kid and all that stuff. I used to go to George's and listen to all the local guys play jazz and, and um, it, I felt like I had arrived um, in 83, 84, 85, when I started to become like the top call session guy. Because when someone, back in the day, when someone called you for a session, it was the ultimate compliment because, er, you know, everything was on union contract and, you know, paid pension and all that stuff. It was all, all above board as opposed to now. Mm-hmm. Some guy hands you a couple hundred bucks, you know. Um, so it was the ultimate compliment. When someone called you for a session, it was like, I could have called anybody in town, but I'm calling you. And that, to me, was when I felt I, I had made it. Because it's like it's the ultimate compliment. It's like, he could have called Doug Riley for the session, but he didn't call Doug Riley. He called me. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty great. And, and if you're doing that all day and all night, all year... That's a lot of compliments. Mm-hmm. I think that was the point. And if I was to ask you why they would call you, like what is it about you that they would have called, uh, that they would have called you other, uh, other than calling somebody else, would you know what that was? I mean, is it just talent or well, what else is there? Definitely in the studio, you got to get along with everybody. Like your personality, like I know lots of guys, which who I will not name, who started getting called for sessions and then because they played great and then a year later two years later no sessions and that boiled down to personality wrong kind of personality a little too edgy in the studio as as a session player when you're called in your whole deal is you are trying to help the producer realize what it is that he's trying to do um you don't even have to be the best player on earth. It's like if you can it's like a director making a movie and it's like being an actor. The session players are the actors. And it's like it's not really your vision, it's the producer's vision. And you have to have a good work ethic too. It's like some of these sessions will go long, man. Like mm-hmm. I mean, some of these rock sessions we be there at 4 a.m. You know, it's like, hey, man, I got a jingle at 10. It's like, oh, well, you know, you don't tell anybody that. And you, you just do it. So why does that happen? Like, I mean, I know some bands, like like the Eagles spent a year working on Hotel California. Yeah. Obviously, they did a good job. Yeah. But when you're in the studio and you're working on a song and it's you're on take 25 or whatever, do you think it's going to get better? It all depends. It depends on the producer. There are good producers and there are terrible ones, too, you know. I mean... The chances of getting a really good track with a bad producer are not very high. So you think it comes down to the producer? I think it does. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So we're going to wrap this up. But when you summarize, when you look back at that young kid who just wants to soak it all in. Right. And the journey that you've taken. Yeah. 
tell me how what how you look back on all this. Well, it's funny. Yeah, you know, I'm 61 now, and so I do look back now, and uh, I was. As I said before, I, I was so excited to be part of the music in, scene in Toronto. I was so excited by all of it. First time working in a big studio, you know, all those milestones. Right. First time working with a horn section. First time working with a string section. First time working with a famous artist. First time working on a song that you end up hearing on the radio and it becomes a big hit. Do you remember that song? I do. Well, uh, the the first one. Yeah. The first one might have been the really big hit would have been probably Platinum Blonde. Uh, I was kind of the, I worked on all, on the two big Platinum Blonde albums and uh, I played all the keyboards on because there's no keyboard player in that band. Right. I was kind of like the silent fifth member of Platinum Blonde. And um, regardless of what you think of the band, that that doesn't matter. It's uh, That record sold 500,000 copies in Canada alone. So when Situation Critical and all those songs came out, they were everywhere. I mean, you couldn't turn on the radio yeah. with, with, without hearing those songs. So that was 86? Yeah. That's so cool. Sorry, but you were continuing about... Sorry, I forget. But <laughs> about the journey and looking back. and Oh, yeah. So looking back now, I mean, I see a super enthusiastic, super excited kid and I'm pretty sure that my enthusiasm was infectious in the studio I think it's I think it's pretty great to have a young guy working with you in the studio who's really jazzed about what he's doing and visibly so mm-hmm. um, as my session career wore on you know you start you know you might do a record that you really don't like and you just kind of sit there and you just kind of play and Thank you very much. You leave, but some some of that first stuff was um, like I mean it's been it's been absolutely amazing. My wife's trying to get me to write a book, but I'm not sure about that. Um, but because I don't know, I'm not <laughs> sure anybody cares about what I have to say. But but it uh, there's been so many great exciting moments. I can't I can't even begin to list them. Um, standing in front of my first big band and going one, two, three, four, and that sound coming back at me from <laughs> from thirteen horns, you know, blaring away at your head. All those things um, were just so exciting. I've I've had such an exciting career, and still to this day, it's pretty amazing when you can um, have a first at sixty-one. Whether that just be working with an artist that you've, you know, idolized since you were in your 20s, like like Mark Jordan or or uh, whatever it is, or, you know, conducting and it's all the members of the Toronto Symphony. You know, it, it's just, it's amazing that I still get to have those moments now. Do you, are you still working constantly to get better? Yeah. Like at this point in your career, you're still trying to be a better piano player or B3 player, producer. Always. Um, or The big thing now is my orchestration. So I'm always trying to be better at, at orchestration. But playing, like I play completely differently now than I played in my 20s and my 30s. 
Like, literally, compl- there's no similarity. This is maturity. This is. It's the maturity. And, lim- you know, now I play, you know, I used to play very hard and very aggressive. Now I play very lightly and I try and play as emotionally as I can possibly play. Um, the things that used to turn me on when I was 25 are very different than the musical things that right. turn me on now. So, you know, we're about to go on a tour with Mark Jordan. We got 15 dates here in Ontario in April and May. I'm so looking forward to that because Mark's music is so introspective and quiet and intimate. Like, that's where I am now. I mean, that's just, I just love that. Going out there with a grand piano, you know. Does your playing, is it different from live to studio? Well, studio, you kind of play what's required. I mean, look, I, I play in a band called Brass Transit, which is a Chicago tribute band. Quite successful. We play all over the States. I have to play like Robert Lamb in that band. I right. play like Chicago. I don't play like me. I play like them. I play like they play. But when I get to tour with someone like Mark or even with my jazz trio, um, I play like how I play. Or at Jazz Lives that's coming up, I'm going to play like I play. Right, okay. And you also play in Oakland Strokes, who's a great band. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't know you played in Brass Transit. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So how do you pick projects? Well, I grew up with Chicago. Right. Um, I, I share that band with Don Brightup, who's the actual keyboard player in the band, and I kind of trade off and do jobs right. that Don can't do. Um, but um, I only do stuff at this point that I enjoy. I wouldn't play in an ABBA tribute band. It's just, I just wouldn't do it. But a Chicago tribute band or a Tower of Power tribute band, I'm there. You know, that's like super, super fun. And that's like, I don't know, it's almost like a party trick. It's like, listen to this. This sounds like Tower of Power. And it's like, damn, it does sound like Tower of Power. <laughs> and people get off on it, and I get off on it because they're my favorite live band ever. And I've, you know, through Oakland Stroke, I've got to know the guys in Tower, Dave Garibaldi and all those guys. And they're, they're very supportive of what we're doing, you know. And I've got two new video singles out with Oakland Stroke. And, and on that stuff, I get to be the arranger that I am because I take classic, I take classic uh, R&B songs like uh, Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang and Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temps and do my kind of new world take on these things you know those are projects those are projects that are pet projects you know passion projects well been quite a career thank you so much for sharing that oh it's been a pleasure Uh, I really appreciate you doing this great